Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Today we are talking about what the author has called his favorite novel, Isaac Asimov's The Gods Themselves. It won the Hugo and the Nebula Awards, and it covers some very, very unusual things. What's What's the basis of the novel? What's going on here? Um, there's this one scientist, Talon, who uh, claims to have created the electron pump, which is a source of energy. It doesn't create pollution. It doesn't really cost anything. And um, it basically takes an element from an, alter an alternate universe and switches it with... Um, an element from ours and it like creates energy. But another guy finds it dangerous. And okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, Lamont found it un un unpleasant. But let, let's go over the basic physics. Remember, Isomov himself was a scientist. And so when he writes about things, he tries to make them as possible as they could be. And we were talking, actually, just before class, about how many of Asimov's books he could not sell. He, they had movie options purchased a number of times. I've communicated with him a little bit, very little, uh, before he died. But he um, basically was very unhappy that he was you know, not able to get a lot of his stuff into movie form. I don't know how one have you. Maybe just a little disappointed. But lots of people bought options from time to time for his movies, but the movies didn't occur. Same with Philip K. Dick. Then after their death, these stories became the hottest property in Hollywood. And there's been lots of movies of, of, uh, Asimov's, of Asimov's work, as same with uh, Philip K. Dick, and some are still in, in, in production now. So again, they were thinking so far ahead of their time. So he... It, he makes it relevant not just because he thinks ahead of his time, but he, th he thinks of it in terms of things that are real. So we had a parallel universe, as Callan pointed out, and that the nuclear properties are different between the universes, and that because of the nuclear properties are different, the different forces that hold protons and, uh, and neutrons and atoms and everything, all that stuff together are different between the universes. So when they start, so when a, a method comes to exchange uh, uh, energy between the two universes, it becomes uh, the so-called electron pump. But Caroline, you said it exactly right. Okay, what else is going on? Within that story, you sort of have the conflict of um, of whether Hallam is really responsible for discovering it, um, and uh, Lamont, is that right? He um, he he gets uh, sort of pushed away because he suggests that maybe the paramen, the men of the parallel universe. Um, are actually smarter and the ones who designed it. And it's not even sure that Hallam even was 
the, the man on earth who was completely responsible for it. And um, so there's a lot of sort of corruption within the science world that he talks about. This is great. Corruption within the science world. And what about egos? Yeah. I mean, what is it that caused Hallam to go on to this ferocious drive to develop this electron pump? What was it that caused it in the first place? What was the psychological insult that he reacted to? Someone moving something on his desk? or well, Someone s- suggested he wasn't such a hot yeah. shot, and he, and he became ferociously um, upset. Actually, you'll see the person return in the end of the, the novel, <laughs> the, the end, by the end of the novel, uh, the person who, who insulted him. But egos... The idea that egos and the idea idea of claiming credit. Boy, I tell you, scientists are just as human as anyone else. They like to claim credit for things. And Asimov was deeply aware of this, and he's, you know, Hallam was driven to this and wanted to take credit for the entire electron pump, not giving credit to the other, to the aliens or anyone else. All right, so we have an electron pump and Hallam, uh, with some significant amount of uh, ego and ego leading to some corruption within the scientific community itself. Really, the repression of information. Isn't that what we're talking about? Hallam not wanting people to know certain things. The repression of information in order to maintain a career track. What else is going on? Well... In the second section of the book, you see it, you see the same story from the perspective of the pairmen or the people in the other universe, and um, there are like three types of pairmen, and one of them is are the emotionals, and Dua is an emotional, except she's kind of a rare exception, and so in order for the pyramid to reproduce, they have to consume a lot of light energy from the sun, and um, because the light power has been decreasing, they um, are using the electron pump more and more, and um, Dua starts learning from Odin, and then she starts thinking and she figures out um, that the electron pump too might be bad and she wants to destroy it. And then once the pyramid find out about that, Lamont is like, we have to stop her. It's interesting. Now, there's, there's an emerge, emerging that goes on with those extraterrestrials. They have the rationals, and Dua's got a few of the traits of a rational, although she's an emotional. And they've got the parents, of course. And they merge, and when they merge, they memory. Actually, when they unmerge, they temporarily merge from time to time. When they unmerge, they don't remember what they were, as as the matures. Now, now, Carolyn, you thought that was weird. Yeah, very weird. <laughs> well, that's their version of sex, I suppose. That's their version of merging. They merge and get together. But it's 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 a it's an interesting concept of merging. And when you relate that to the human concept of procreation. But what about the idea of lying in the sun? How do they eat? They lie in the sun. <laughs> they lie in the sun. You see, the nuclear properties are different, and they have to absorb the sun's energy directly. 
how do we get sun's energy? Through plants and things like that, plants and animals. So everything we eat is solar energy. I mean, the sun shines on the ground. Plants grow. Those plants then become things that we eat. And but plants are nothing more than stored solar energy. It, they're energy we consume them, but we get energy. For, it's just energy, solar energy. When we go up the food chain and we eat something that's moving around, a fish or a you know, a, a hamburger, a Big Mac or something like that. Well, we're eating meat that was originally come came from solar energy. And basically there's a, a law of, the, of, of ecology where you basically lose 90% of all of energy each time, 90% of the sun's energy each time you eat something that's higher up at the food chain. So the plant is getting the sun's energy directly. The grasshopper that eats the plant is taking 10% of that solar energy, losing 90% of it. And then the rat that eats the grasshopper gets 10% of whatever's left in the grasshopper. And then the hawk that eats the rat gets 10% of that. So you keep losing energy each time you go up the, up the food chain. But that's the way we consume solar energy. In this parallel universe, you consume solar energy differently. You consume solar energy directly by lying in the sun. Okay. Plausible, because in fact plants do it. Plausible, so in fact plants do it. And the merging, since the nuclear forces are different, Carolyn, you think that's weird, but since the nuclear forces are different, the, a- the atoms themselves don't necessarily repel each other. See, if you look at this table and you say, why, why does my hand rest on top of the table? Why doesn't it pass right through? Asimov was talking about a, a real... Phenomena. Physicists are always amazed at why it doesn't go through. Inside this table is n- almost entirely empty space. The atoms are, and the electrons and the neutrons, and so on, they're all separated. And you don't actually have them physically bumping into each other. Fields resist displacement as well. It's not just physical things, but fields resist displacement. So what we have is the atoms making up this table have fields... And when I push down with my hand, the reason my hand doesn't go through it is the fields are resisting displacement. Well, in a parallel universe, if the nuclear forces are different, there's no reason why physical force wouldn't lead for something to pass right through it. So a hand would go right through the table. Well, entirely plausible from a physics, from a physics perspective, and, and Asimov blends that all in. Well, what about the issue of corruption? Let's talk about the social concepts that are associated with this, because sometimes it's hard when you look at this at first to say, well, what are we going to talk about with regard to politics and society? What's going on here where they have merging extraterrestrials and you have an electron pump? But now let's look. There's a great quote in the very beginning of the book to start it out. Open up your front cover. Practical politics and the death of a world. Okay? Quote from it. It's a quote from inside. Let me give you a lesson in practical politics. Senator Burt looked at his wristwatch, leaned back, and smiled. It is a mistake, he said, to suppose that the public wants the environment protected 
or their lives saved, and that they will be grateful to any idealist who will fight for such ends. What the public wants is their own individual comfort. Now then, young man, don't ask me to stop the pumping. The economy and comfort of the entire planet depend on it. Tell me instead how to keep the pumping from exploding the sun. Lamont said, there is no way, Senator. We are dealing with something here that is so basic we can't play with it. We must stop it. Ah, and you can suggest only that we go back to matters as they were before pumping. We must In that case, you will need hard and fast proof that you are right. The best proof, Lamont says stiffly, is to have the sun explode. What does this remind you of in today's world? The oil crisis. What? Uh, It reminds me a lot of, like, oil. Oil crisis? Reminds me of global warming. Global warming. Some of the hurdles that we're facing right now. Global warming people are still, believe it or not, debating global warming. And they're still debating how much global warming will actually affect the society. How much it will affect the planet, too. The the arrogance of scientists, politicians, media to constantly being portraying, constantly to still portray the global warming debate as one of a debate where they're trying to figure out degrees, not just degrees of how hot, but degrees of influence and whether we can keep on going or whether we need to moderate what we do slightly or a lot. Or When reality is, all evidence is showing that the only thing that will save us is a radical departure from what we're doing now. If you look at the planet, the way we're going, China, India, they are... Look at China just by itself. It is buying up every type of energy source it can possibly get. Coal and oil, everywhere in the Sudan, whether there's genocide or not. You know, there is nothing going on in the planet that suggests that any real far-reaching plans are being made to radically change energy energy consumption in, in the world. All evidence points to the fact that for the next 25 years, they're going to be ex- depleting the oil stocks until they're all dried up. So the real question that we have to ask is, are we any different than Asimov's world? What people want is their own individual comfort. Meaning you hear a lot of talk, Al Gore talking about global warming as being an important thing, but what really matters is individual comfort. and. In fact, isn't that real? Isn't the issue of whether we should be fighting in Iraq ultimately boiling down to whether we should be able to drive our SUVs? I mean, the reality is, every time we have a soldier driving, uh, a soldier be killed in, in, in Iraq, that soldier is killed just so someone can drive an SUV here. It's blood money. Now, if you think about it, We could completely cut off our need for Middle East oil, but that would take a radical transformation of our economy. And you have to say, well, who then is pushing it? Who then is pushing it so that this won't happen? That they would be willing to send people off to be killed, to be maimed, in order to do this? And the question you ask is, are people really that bad? Can it really be that bad? Well, Isomov seems to suggest it could. They're willing to risk the annihilation of the entire planet just in order to keep the energy going. That's what Asimov is saying. 
And the question you have to face is, are we really that bad? Well, we have a war going on in Iraq. The only reason we're in Iraq, there are a lot of bad places. You don't see us invading Sudan. There's a lot of bad places that are doing terrible things. Sudan is as bad as Iraq in terms of bad, you know, bad things that they're doing. But we're in Iraq because they have the oil. And even Hillary Clinton has said we're probably going to be staying in there for a long term, not in terms of fighting their civil war, but in terms of maintaining the oil supplies. We have strategic interests in Iraq. Oil. It all boils down to energy, mineral rights, consumption. Well, science fiction is a what-if, right? We're allowed in this course to speculate in what-ifs. You want to know something that happened just the other day that was sort of interesting? This is a what-if for you. There's an interesting website that is followed by an awful lot of people, including a large number of people in the government. We know this because of the servers record where the hits are coming from. And it's called Mars Anomaly Research. And this website, MarsAnomaliesResearch.com, I think it's .com, but it may be .org, is uh, run by a guy, uh, Joseph Patrick Skipper, often goes just by name Patrick, who's, he's put, a, he's put together one of the most professional websites on photographic anomalies uh, relating to mostly Mars. And what that is, is when satellites go, space probes go to Mars, and make photographs, a lot of the pictures that are released to the public have been doctored. They've been changed. And he is one of those careful sleuths that goes through the photographs and shows where all the doctoring has been going. Tremendous stuff. I mean, tremendous stuff. And people like Arthur C. Clarke have looked at some of his work and the pictures and, and said, still, just point blank, you know, the public does not is not being told bluntly what is going on there. There is enormous amounts of photographic anomalies and, and, and clear photographic tampering. And so, at least from the perspective of, of many who look at those, so I'm not claiming as an absolute fact that the photographs have been tampered because then I'd have to have people from the associated agencies come in here and confess with witnesses that it has been done. But nonetheless, I, would, I can say that there are a great many people who are claiming that there has been photographic tampering and the evidence for anyone who looks at it uh, seems to be quite interesting. Well, on his website he has a guest book and the Mars Anomalies Research website. And there was a recent post that was sort of interesting. And I'm not saying it's true or or any, I'm not making any claims in it, but it's a what-if scenario that we're allowed to do. And if we're going from Isaac Asimov to something like this, let's ask. First, Patrick Skipper, Joseph Patrick Skipper, makes a comment about this post that was, that was done. And the post was recent, uh, the 7th of April, year 2007. And his comment is, you should be aware that there is an extraordinary post in this website's guest book dated April 7th, 2007, that alleges to be from someone deep inside JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, 
As many of you know, JPL is the preeminent world entity involved in active, in actual active space exploration, as compared with NASA, who merely held public, res- who is merely held publicly responsible for it. This person's comments appear below verbatim for your consideration. And the it was anonymous, and that's always a question. But sometimes these anonymous posts are interesting to read anyway. And the person called himself or herself, quote-unquote, I wish I could tell you, meaning he wished he could tell who he actually was. Anyway, this is what he writes, and just consider it from the perspective of Asimov's book. Remember, in this course, we're allowed to speculate. It is interesting to note that if you visit our Planetary Journal website and visit the database that displays Saturn's moon Titan, you will see that Cassini's radar has indeed detected massive lakes and oceans. We refer to this data as lakes and oceans. It's all about proximity. Of all the known planets in our solar system, Titan is perhaps the best breeding ground for basic life, and it has obvious water, as in liquid, composed of hydrogen and oxygen, versus methane, ammonia, and other corrosive or toxic liquids that that simulate water in photographic analysis. But... It is very far away, and thus we have, we can be more truthful about it. Yes, we do conceal some areas of Mars because of the mining rights the United States wants to secure there. If we do not conceal certain photographic areas sent by MRO or more detailed probes, our competing nations such as China, Russia, and other more capable spaceflight nations will no doubt recognize the presence of oil, precious minerals, ores, and other profitable mining possibilities and attempt to begin mining operations on Mars before us. Proximity is why we must conceal certain areas of Mars. A skilled geologist can identify ore and mineral deposits simply by studying sedimentation and the types of geology in a detailed photograph or by spectroscopic analysis. There is a wealth of minerals and ores on Mars that many corporations currently attempting to gain control of Iraq and the Middle East and the Mideast oil would yet again sadly kill to obtain. Yet they do not have the military or industrial means to secure both fronts, Mars and the Mideast. Honestly, we are controlled by the same corporations that control our media. National security is no longer merely secrets surrounding weapons. National security is now securing our economy and economic investments. The media is heavily controlled by big business, which is our government, by the way. Corporations are now our government, and this is why a trend in presidents has turned toward former and current corporate executives. It is sad, and we at JPL must sadly participate in this, or we lose our employment and funding. We are a pawn just like the U.S. media. If we report truth, we lose. If we do what we are told, we gain. I hope this helps a bit. This is a very professional website. Unfortunately, the covert operations at JPL are not all about supposed UFOs and aliens. I have no idea if they exist or not. It's about money in the form of gold, oil, silver, and new forms of ores you can't even begin to imagine. That is the only reason we tamper and conceal. To control the world, you must control the oil and resources. And if we point other nations to other sources, then we lose our power and our wealth. See how it works? Thank you for your time.
your friend in the bowels of JPL's geophysics department. Interesting, isn't it? It's a curious type of post. Sometimes when you read posts like this, I remember there was an odd post that I once read to Michael Duvall, who was a... Uh, again, it was an anonymous post. I read it to him. Uh, actually, I sent it to him for him to read. It was a different post on a different subject many years ago, and Michael Duvall had served uh, two presidents, both Nixon and Ford. He was one of the top five people in two White Houses. And it was an odd post, and I just sent it to him. And I said, what do you make of it? And normally he would say things are not credible to me. He would say, oh, this is not credible, this is not realistic. But this one he said, no, that was credible. I said, well, why do you, how do you know something's credible or not? It's just anonymous. He said, you can tell by the way it's written. Because, and then he pointed out to the aspects of the post that made it credible. And he pointed out that, you know, this is how people think in those agencies, and this is the way it would really be talked about behind closed doors, and it's not likely that the average person would invent a story like that. And too many pieces fit together in terms of the way the conversations go on behind closed doors. So, with a post like this, with an anonymous post like this, you have to sort of ask those same type of questions that Mike Duvall asked earlier on. And, again, this is not a post where someone's making wild claims about UFOs. It's just talking about mineral rights and mining rights. It sounds very credible. If you think about it, we're spending an enormous amount of money for extraterrestrial exploration, sending probes to Mars. Is it really just about, hey, that's cool, look, a mountain, ooh. I mean, it's, you had to think about it. This is a lot of money. Is it really, with, with tight budgetary concerns, is it really something where we're just interested in the ooh-ah effect, just space, just for the sake of that? Or is there some other issues going on? Exploration for the purpose of finding out what may be useful for us at some future point in time. And in the situation of Mars, it is close. You can say, okay, we can't go to Mars and get minerals and stuff like that. What are you talking about? What happens in 25 years? Think about the book, Asimov's The Gods Themselves. What happens in 25 years? Here on Earth. In your lifetime. Not far away. You'll be, what, 45? 40? Mid-40s? Lower 40s? 41, 42 in 25 years? 44? You're not going to be old. Okay. You'll be in your 40s. 25 years. What will happen? Think of the book. We're thinking of Asimov's The Gods Themselves. What will happen? What is this book about in terms of resources? What resource is it about? Energy It's about energy. What will happen in 25 years? Is the oil going to be found? There will be no oil. What's that? I said or coal, that's easy to get. You know, we have plenty of coal. Well, but we do have plenty of coal, but like right now in Virginia where they're mining, they're already going back like a third sweep of what they've already gotten from previous decades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they do have, in the, in, the north, in the northern states, they do have tons of coal. We have a huge resources of coal. 
The issue is, again, with coal, we have pollution, carbon dioxide. And if you start burning all that coal, you're going to be pumping all that carbon dioxide. And then you can talk about the global warming issue again. But the issue of oil is clear. In 25 years, it's over. It's over. So you're going to be burning something else in your lifetime. So, you know, enjoy the gas while you've got it. Later on in your life, you're going to be burning, you know, burning something else. I don't know what it will be, but it will be pure alcohol or liquefied coal. They can make liquid fuels out of coal. I don't know what it will be, but it will be something that you'll be using. Maybe hydrogen fuel cells, whatever. The issue is, though, that that energy resource, and a resource that we are very willing to send people off to die to get, rather than to force our own nation to conserve, we could we could easily, within just a few years, I mean, just it would be so easy within a few years to reduce our consumption of oil. But it would take an enormous amount of political will, not something that is in great supply these days. But, you know, I mean, if you think about it, oil is, oh, let's just say... It bumps all around the place. Let's just say $60 a barrel. You could dramatically cut our oil supplies and our oil needs by just raising that to 100 Slap a $40 a barrel on the importation of oil. Make it 50 as is necessary. The price of gas will go up. The competitive price of ethanol will be spectacular. Other resources will happen. But what are the possibilities the, of doing that? You have countries like Saudi Arabia desperately trying to avoid having the U.S. do things like that. Whenever it looks like oil stocks are getting a little bit too tight, what do they do? Rather than just let the money come in because of the increase in price, they increase production to keep the price down a little bit, meaning they don't want conservation. Similarly, if you're an oil executive in the United States, do you want oil conservation? You want the money in the bank as quick as possible. You don't want oil conservation. You want Hummers on the street. Oil conservation is something that people that are not in the oil industry talk about. If you're in the oil industry, you are not talking oil conservation. If you wrote, if you actually ran a hamburger stand, would you be spending your money to advertise and control the obesity? Uh, the, the I'm sorry, the um, the obesity epidemic in the United States. You want people to buy those burgers. You don't want people to say, hey, don't buy those things. Hey, there's a commercial out. What is the commercial about Quiznos? What 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 uh, company do that? Yeah, Quiznos versus what? Versus Subway, which is healthier. Versus Subway. Now, the big thing about Subway is, what did you say? They're healthier? Yeah, they've got that guy who lost a whole lot of weight eating the subs. And the subs have, like, less meat and stuff, but they're healthier that way. They have vegetarian subs. Low in fat. I mean, if you go in there, they tell you the fat contents of each one of their of their stuff. Their honey mustard is a great sauce. I put it on the vegetarian subs that I get, and my son get. My son, and my wife, they love those vegetarian ones. The honey mustard has no fat in it at all. I mean, they do a lot of experimentation to get good tasting food that is a proper meal size, and they advertise it. This is the meal size that you're supposed to take. You're not supposed to get those humongous meal sizes. That's a very rare company, don't you think? Everybody else is saying, more meat, more this, bigger this, bigger that, eat, eat, eat. So we have the subways of the world, but on the other hand, 
How many companies are there like that with regard to any product they sell? I mean, whether it's newspaper, buy more newspaper. Whether it's hamburgers, buy more hamburgers. Whether it's this, whether it's that. People want you to buy their products. Now, Subway, of course, is actually similar. They realize there's a market for health-conscious eating. So for them, it's buy more regularly. (laughs) Reasonable meals, but regularly. And if, in fact, they stopped producing more healthy meals... They would move their market. They would move their their clientele in the direction of less healthy food, and then somebody else would start up a store that would say, "For those people who want to be eating more healthy, you know," and then they lose that customer base. So you know, they're very similar in 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 that regard at all. But nonetheless, energy energy is a huge issue, and we're going to be out of gasoline, oil stocks in a few decades, in a very few decades, actually. And the issue then is 25 years from now, what will be the situation with regard to Mars? When there is no gasoline and also the technological advances of another two and a half decades goes by, I mean, they're going to be very clearly starting to talk about putting permanent bases not just on the moon, but on Mars. And what happens when you get a permanent base on Mars? What's nearby Mars? Lots of rocks that float around doing nothing. What are those rocks called? Is it an asteroid field? Asteroids. Asteroids. It looks like a planet that blew up or something. I mean, solid rocks. They had to... Something had to bring them together to make them big, solid rocks before they were cracked up. I mean... There wasn't enough gravity to bring those things together at first. So something had to come together. So something weird happened out there. Maybe, two, maybe you know, three billion years ago, maybe two planets collided or something like that and blew up and broke, broke themselves or whatever. Nonetheless, there's a lot of rocks out there. Minerals waiting for the taking. And if this post is correct, there is a ton of stuff on Mars. Mars itself could produce tremendous mining capabilities. Just imagine a whole planet. And you don't have to worry about people suing you because you're digging a hole in their backyard or you're defacing their mountain. Can you imagine that? You can go anywhere, do anything you want, destroy anything, dig up anything in terms of the environment. You don't have to worry about things like that. That's what they're thinking. So... When you look at those corporations, you say, how much is near-term profit? Well, near-term profit, you start talking about invading Iraq. But a certain percentage of their profit is invested in long-term stuff, long-term projects. And that's where Mars becomes a, uh, an interesting question. Okay, the gods themselves... By the way, you know, I might just read just a couple paragraphs from uh, Patrick Skipper's response to this because it's sort of interesting. Let me just read what he wrote a little bit. Now, obviously, I have no way of knowing if this person is really from within JPL, and and it is appropriate to be cautious about the origins of such comments. On the other hand, here is my take on it. The calm, articulate comments and the rational way they are presented sound as though they come from a very reasonable person with no particular axe to grind. 
and not just from someone trying to pull our collective chain as a prank. Further, the points made are solid and would seem to be the kind of information and points of view that a reasonable person, and in particular JPL, would want you and I to consider in understanding JPL's position and the limitations they have to deal with. Obviously, if they cannot, if they cannot ignore them, then neither can we. If the source is legitimate and from only a single individual in JPL, as is portrayed here in the guestbook post, then the lack of identifying information on this person makes sense as such a lone person breaking ranks with the collective secrecy would be at risk. In fact, the risk would be so high and the ability of a lone individual to shield themselves from it so poor that the secrecy ranks that I question within the secrecy ranks, that I question whether we are dealing with a lone person here or not. But perhaps these comments are from some group, either from within, within JPL or higher up the latter, speaking on JPL's behalf or uh, for our special benefit. It's a question. Regardless of the true source, it is the message and insight that counts, and counts big time here. Among certain obvious admissions here are image tampering national security involvement, and hiding information in this post. The main, the main thrust of this message asks us to consider some very legitimate reasons why secrecy and the national security are so deeply embedded in the USA space exploration efforts, and I personally agree with this position, at least to an extent. Such concerns are real and legitimate, and my long recognition of them is why I never attempt to preach in my work against the secrecy crowd, or try to sensationalize and whip up people's emotions to be against these people, and let's go headhunting. In my opinion, that would be both irrational and irresponsible, and no direction to lead people in. On the other hand, what I do preach against is the lack of sufficient truth filtered down to the public about space exploration within practical, reasonable, reachable distances from Earth. And it is the case, as is the case with the Moon and Mars. The guestbook message implies, and we would and would have us believe that the secrecy agenda is itself a primary, a primarily a function associated with the valuable natural resources available in, on these planetary bodies in conjunction, with, in conjunction with the diverse political competitive environment between countries here on Earth, and who among competitors will be able to exploit them first to various national interests. Anyway, it goes on, but it's a rather interesting point of view and a very interesting concept. What do we see similar to that going on in the book, in the gods themselves? Well, um, with the with that electron pump, we're kind of exploiting the energy in the alternate universe, and it doesn't really hurt the people in our universe at all. But they... Um, apparently have no sympathy for what it's doing to the people in the other universe. Mm. What do we, does anyone read far enough into the novel to discover what actually happens in our universe with that electron pump? It starts affecting our sun. The sun. It starts affecting our sun. And if, they, and if it affects our sun, what will happen to the sun? Explode. It'll explode. Into what? Yeah. A supernova. A supernova. We see if it... If you exchange matter from one universe to the next, you're changing the nuclear properties of the surrounding environment. And that would, from Isabel's point of view, uh, cause the sun to burn differently. And in fact, it would cause it to age more quickly and 
more rapidly and uh, you would eventually go into the supernova stage. And we find out there's a sort of a nice ending, technological fix at the end, but um, the interesting thing is that we're threatened with planetary extinction, solar system extinction, but certainly our civilization extinction. And uh, the response? I know that like when they're talking about it in the beginning and they say this would have to happen like millions of years in the future, people don't really care because they're comfortable now and mm-hmm. it doesn't cost them anything. Future thinking is so hard to get people to, to do. You're right. That's exactly right. But now, when they think about it in real terms, it turns out to be that it might not be in millions of years. When they learn more about it, they find out it may be sooner rather than later. What about global warming? Wasn't that always portrayed as something in the distant? Maybe even now they're starting to they're, they're thinking about it as well, you know, a hundred years from now. I think oil's kind of portrayed that way too, because until you said 25 years, um, I had always heard, you know, millions of years before oil resources run out. So yeah, oil is going to be going. Think of it that way. Yeah. You know, there's a professor at Harvard. Edward O. Wilson, who's been talking about the genetics of humans for a long time. You know the word myopic, means nearsightedness. He says that we're nearsighted in the sense that we don't look into the future very far. Well, think of it in a competitive Darwinian evolutionary struggle. We have to ask ourselves, are we evil that we keep information from the public? Or is it our nature, just the way it is? Are we bad or is it just the way we're programmed? If it's just the way we're programmed, we're a victim of our own programming. Well, what would cause our brain to be hardwired in such a way that we would be myopic in the way we think? Well, just think about it. You're a hawk. You're flying about. There's other animals that need to eat. You see a rat. What do you do if you're a hawk? Do you look around and say, would anyone like to share? What do you do if you're a hawk? Swoop down and eat it. You swoop down there with a dive-bombing skill before anyone else gets it. You get it, and then what do you do once you get the rat? Do you then look around and say, anyone want to dine with me? You quickly wolf it down as quick as you can. You get it into the stomach and then fly away. What if you're a cheetah in Africa and you kill a gazelle. What do you do with that gazelle? You just sit down there and munch on it and have a dinner? What do cheetahs do with gazelles once they get them? They eat them. But what are they? Pull them into trees. They put them in the trees. Oh. They climb them up. Now, uh, why do they put them in the tree? So no one else can get them. So to protect them. 
So they like drag these corpses. They, they drag like, them. Do you see they, them like hanging in trees? And yeah, that's right. That's right. They take them up there and they drag them up into a tree because they know that there are lions and other animals that can't climb trees, but that will attack them and chase off, chase them off and eat their their kill. So, from an evolutionary perspective, what animal will survive? Evolution, the Darwinian competitive race. The one who says, gosh, I wonder what the other animals need to eat. Or the one who says, this is my kill, I've got it, and now I've got to hoard it. Do you get the idea? When a squirrel is full, but it sees an acorn, what does it do to that acorn? It stores it. Where does it store it? In like a private hiding place in the ground or something. Well, can you say a little bit more about that? I don't know anything else. <laughs> Anyone know? I just thought they hid it inside a tree. Actually, they don't. They bury them. They dig little holes and bury this and bury the acorns. Now, squirrels. Now, I'm not making a you know derogatory comment, <laughs> but squirrels are not very smart. Yeah, you know, some squirrels are very nice, but they're not very clever. So what they do is they forget where those acorns were buried. That's why we have so many trees. The squirrels end up planting these acorns all over the place, and they forget where they buried them, and we have trees popping up all over the place. So what we have is squirrels hoarding their food. Now what happens when you have an expedition out into Africa? And you go out where uh, good all is, say, you know, I don't think she's out in the wilderness anymore, but nonetheless, figuratively speaking, you go out where the chimps are and the gorillas are, and you put a big pile of bananas next to the chimps or the gorillas. What happens? What do the chimps do? Do they all come and put the bananas in the center and then break them all apart and distribute them? What do you think happens? You know, when they fight, and who gets them? The big, the biggest male. The biggest, meanest guy in in the group gets them and then chases away all the others. It's his hoard of bananas. That they actually have filmed this numerous times. There's a hoarding of bananas, and other everybody else just looks and wants. I mean, the stories could go on and on. We've got two parakeets in my home, and, and whenever we give them ramen noodles, one parakeet chases the other parakeet away in order to hoard the ramen noodles until it's quite clear that nothing more could be eaten, and then <laughs> a dominance issue goes on, hoarding. Well, in the evolutionary struggle, that will work great. And what happens when those selfish individuals mate? What will the genes be like? like the perpetuation of selfish genes. Perpetuation of selfish genes. The genes of the prophets are not destined to be around very long. They'll, they'll come up as random mutations, but the vast majority of everybody, all humans, will be the genetic result of a successful evolutionary march through the Darwinian competitive ages as selfish people. We needed to be in order to survive. In the short run, selfishness works great. And if you think about the future, 
that's very similar to thinking about your neighbor. Why should you worry about something that will happen in a year? i got to get through today. Today is the meal that I need to worry about. Don't worry about your destruction of the environment. Eat today. We'll worry about the environment later. So the person who is the most selfish is the person who will survive and end up destroying the environment. So if we look at ourselves, we're genetically programmed to be like that. And Edward O. Wilson has argued that we have a short window of time where we have to change our behavior. We are now fully capable of destroying our planet and having the civilization on our planet come to a crumbling end. And Edward O. Wilson is saying we have a window of time that's fundamentally tied to how efficiently we use the solar energy. If we were all herbivores, we wouldn't need our resources so much. And we could extend our window of time to sort of get our act together, to change our behavior from myopic, short-sighted, near-sighted people that don't look to the future to long-sighted people, far-sighted people that look far into the future to sort of manage the resources of the planet. And depending on how efficiently we use our solar energy will depend on how long that window is. And if we have a long enough window, we'll survive. We'll be able to figure out how to change, how to fight against our genetic predisposition. And if the window is too short, for example, if we all evolved out of, say, lions who were, have short intestines, only 10 feet, totally meat eaters, carnivorous, very inefficient users of the solar energy on the planet, well, the window wouldn't be long enough. So an intelligent race of lions would die off. We're sort of in the middle. We have intestines that are not as long as a cow's, an herbivore, they even have two stomachs. But our intestines are not so short as a lion. We're sort of in the middle. We can live as vegetarians, but we can also eat meat. So Edward O. Wilson has a big question mark. Humanity with a huge question mark on it. Will we survive? Are we suicidal? Interesting point. Well, from the energy perspective, Isaac Asimov is pointing a similar picture, isn't he? We're right on the edge. I mean, here we have a novel of people willing to risk total annihilation for the benefit of the electron pump. Remember what the uh, senator says. Now then, young man, don't ask me to stop the pumping. The economy and the comfort of the entire planet depend on it. Tell me instead how to keep the pumping from exploding the sun. Again, looking for a technological fix. How would you compare that with global warming? What are they looking for now? Environmentalists are saying what? What are environmentalists saying? Environmentalists are on the one side. What's their extreme position? What, what is the most extreme position that an environmentalist could take? To stop using fossil fuels altogether. Completely. And that's what Lamont is saying. 
So in a very real sense, Lamont is the spokesperson for the extreme environmental movement, which would say simply stop. Stop doing that which is destructive. Okay. And if you then look at the other side of it, what is the corporate world saying? We just need to decrease incrementally how much we use. Or Or find a quick fix. Or develop a fix. A band-aid. Yeah. Who has the power? The environmental movement or the corporate world? The corporate world. The corporate world has the power. So the answer is the pumping will continue until a quick fix or some type of fix is developed. What is Asimov saying about our current situation then with regard to energy usage and global warming? If you were to speculate on from the gods themselves into what Asimov is saying about our society and our prospects, how would you use this to predict what will happen? The environmentalists are right, basically, as far as Asimov. They are right, but... But they're not going... They're not the ones that are going to make the choice. They'll lose. They're right, but they'll lose. That's what Asimov is saying. Did anyone have a passage that was sort of cool for for reading? Did you happen? Remember on on um, I have some passages, but remember on uh, Thursday, have some passages ready to rock. Do you have one? Carolyn, do you have any passages? Did um, you? I highlighted a few things. What did you have? Let's turn over to page 56. And actually, what chapter is this? Is it, well, this, of course, is in the first section. Remember, the gods himself is broken up into three basic parts. I have something highlighted here, too. On, on 56? What yeah. do you have? From, um, I wouldn't think so, down to... Like three paragraphs down to its true potential. Oh, actually, that's very much what I had marked. So why don't you read that one? Okay. I wouldn't think so. Conditions are different there. Paratheory makes Actually, why don't we introduce it? They're talking about the para-universe. Yeah. Okay? And it's full of quasars and things like that. Go ahead. Paratheory makes it seem quite definite that fusion takes place much more easily over there, so that the stars must be considerably smaller than ours on average. It would take a much smaller supply of easily fusing hydrogen to produce the energy our sun does. A supply as large as that of our sun would explode spontaneously. If our laws permeate the pair universe, the hydrogen becomes a little more difficult to fuse. Pair stars begin to cool down. Well, that's not so bad, said Chen. They can use the pumping to supply themselves with the necessary energy. By your speculations, they're in fine shape. Not really, said Lamont. Until now, he hadn't thought about the pair situation. Through. Once our end explodes, the pumping stops. They can't keep it up without us, and that means they'll face a cooling star without pump energy. They might be worse off than we. We'd go out in a painless flash while their agony would be long drawn out. You have a good imagination, Professor, said Chen, but I'm not buying it. I don't see any chance of giving up pumping on nothing more than your imagination. Do you know what the pump means to mankind? It's not just the free, clean, and copious energy. Look beyond that. What it means is that mankind no longer has to work for a living. It means that for the first time in history, mankind can turn its collective brains to more important problem of developing its true potential. Yeah. 
What do you think about that? What are your thoughts about that? I had marked some of that as well. Well, I think it's interesting that they not only don't care that um, this could mean the possible end of our civilization on our side, but they have absolutely no sympathy for what's going to happen to the pyramid on the other side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, they're basically living for themselves now, like you said, and not caring about anybody else in the future, their children, or the people on the other side and what's going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. It also raises the question of what does the species do if it doesn't have to survive, it doesn't have to work to survive. Yeah. Say more about that. That's really interesting. Well, like, even now, we don't have to do that much to make sure that we have food and a place to live, like the basic things. And... Um, so you find ourselves with like a lot of cultural things like theater and literature and um, like those kinds of films of entertainment. So because we're not having to focus so much on surviving, we do things like self-expression. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it can go in two directions mm -hmm. though. Like either you can get a lot of good cultural stuff, a lot of good technology and all that, or you can get um, these type of people who want to go off and try and take over the world, you know, get all the um, resources they can accumulated, you know, even though they don't really need them. Hmm. But, like, I think like, if we had a source of energy that was, I mean, at least when it was discovered, was seemingly um, harmless and very, very useful and easy to produce. Um, so then we would like we wouldn't be in the war with Iraq. We wouldn't be exploring mm -hmm. the Earth for any bit of oil. We wouldn't perhaps be exploring Mars if that article was right as much mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. we were. Um, and so then we could spend that money on things like trying to cure AIDS and cancer and mm -hmm. um, sort of build our society up. So I think that's I thought that was really interesting to think about. Like how you could start working on, on other things if you yeah. were working on energy. But would we really do that, or would we find something else to fight over? And how long would the human lifespan become? That's true. That could be a real problem. Well, what if we did expand our life, as it says actually in the next paragraph, to 150 some odd years or something? What would be the social and political implications of that? Eventually you'd have to implement some sort of population control. Well, people are going to be around for a long time. Yeah. It's true. And uh, we've talked about this before, like with um, older generations, you have less like adaptability to new ideas. They don't want to... What if you had old people that stayed around for 80 years as old people? Retired 80-year-old people, meaning not that they are 80 years old, but for 80 years they would be retired. You would have a generational gap. Go ahead. If someone's going to live to be 150, I don't think they're going to be retired for 80 of those years. They'll probably just like, end up looking much longer. Uh, pushing the retirement age. Although with our current population, we have extended the lifespan, but we have not extended the yeah, the ability of people to work. 
beyond a certain length. People still retire when they're 65. And then the question is, are they as vigorous as they were when they were 30, when they're 70, or when they're 80? Meaning we extend the lifespan, but it's necessary. But we have, we, have we extended the quality of that life? Now, we have only just a minute to go. Actually, we're, we are up, actually, in time. What I'd like you to think about is the next section. The issue of a generational gap is very important for this novel. And it really is pointing to a society problem that we're facing, which is exactly what we've just touched on, the generational gap. Basically, just to get you started so you have questions to think about, with the extraterrestrials, what is the gap? How is the gap actually found? You have the matures, and then you have the rationals, emotionals, and parentals. What do we have about the components, the young people? Why are they different from the mature ones? Think about that. Who's creating the pump and willing to destroy an entire civilization? One of the mature... Um, the matures. Yeah. They're all collab- One is thinking of it, but they're all collaborating. They're all willing to kill whatever it needs in order to get their energy needs. And then the young people, Dua, the emotionals, the, the rationals, and so on, they're the ones who are fighting against that. You see a generational gap. Who has the power, however? The matures. The matures. And in fact, the young people turn into <coughs> the matures. They merge into the matures. There's a generational gap. So... Asimov talking about generational gaps and the behavior of the people is being so dramatically different. I mean, you're talking life and death issues. Generational stuff leads to different ways of thinking, really different ways of thinking. Now, I'm not talking in sort of human terms about elderly people who are 80 years old wanting to become mass murderers. I'm not talking about that at all. Elderly people are generally very, very quiet and, and you know, very peaceful. But think in terms of generations, generational differences between your age and people 40, 50. That generational difference. Who's sending the people off to fight wars? Is it young people? Who, 18 years old, has ever started a war? I'm sure there's a Russian somewhere. But Somebody, there's, but in general, <laughs> the people who start wars are the older people. And I mean older, I'm not talking 80 years old. I'm talking 40, 50, 60. 40, 50, that age group. So um, think about that, because just the concept of generational divide and the conflicts in terms of what they fight over is a big part of this novel. Okay, I will see you all on Thursday. Remember to have passages marked out. Okay, great.